Lucifer Podcast is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. For all things comics, movies, media, music, and more, check out the Cage Club Network. That's cageclub.me. Welcome back to all new, all different, Uncanny X's for Podcasts, where we examine the Uncanny X-Men comic book franchise as it begins its multi-title 80s expansion. I'm your host, Jonah. And I'm Nico, and hope you survive the experience. It has been quite a roller coaster. I feel like every couple of minutes we're having some sort of celebration or anniversary or relaunch point, and as much as I'd like to be like, it's because we're just so creative and we keep stumbling onto these. It's because the Uncanny X-Men themselves went through that many transformations. We just relaunched around the fallout of the Dark Phoenix saga, and we're relaunching in a sense again, having just lost John Byrne, half of the creative team piloting this ship. We are seeing the return of Dave Cockrum this episode, so it kind of feels like the X-Men are evolving backward. In fact, the issue without Dave Cockrum, features a familiar face in and of itself. The return of Cyclops so quickly to the series. Jonah, it's been kind of like pinball with our feelings going back and forth with all the restarts. Talk to me. On your uncanny journey, where do you find yourself? I guess I'm in a very limbo waiting period right now because I'm waiting for the X-Men to evolve forward, as you said. It seems like they had to take a step backward because of the change in team, which makes sense. Uh, You can't just jump off to someone new that quickly and things are going to take a little bit to get used to again, even though Dave Cockrum was already on the Uncanny team. That being said, we're still waiting. We're still waiting for this to take off in a new direction. And I feel like I know what you mean. Every time the X-Men change their lineup, it feels like we need a couple of months before we really find our footing again. The giant size X-Men took a few months. then. When the X-Men separated into two separate teams, stranding Jean and Beast, well, I guess actually stranding all the other X-Men, if you really think about it, but it took a little while for the giant-size, all-new, all-different X-Men to find their footing. And as much as we've loved the transition to Kitty Pride, it's going to take a second for us to get used to Kitty as the dynamic center of the team. The non-superheroic action that used to take place in Uncanny frequently centered on these young adults finding themselves and going on dates and out into the city, and now it's all centering around a young woman of 13 and a half, and she is much less likely to date her ex-girlfriend's roommate. Uncanny X-Men number 144 by Chris Claremont and Brent Anderson, which sees Cyclops attempt a normal life when despair strikes. We're going to take a brief detour into Rom Space Night with issues number 17 to 18 by Bill Mantlow and Sal Buscema, where Rom discovers that one of the alien species, the Diorates, has mated with a human, resulting in the hybrid. 
an all-powerful new creature who pits the X-Men against Rom. Then we turn to Uncanny X-Men number 145 to 147, written by Chris Claremont with art by the returning Dave Cockrum and Joseph Rubenstein. The X-Men face off against Doctor Doom, Arcade, and Morn in an adventure so big it takes the help from Havoc, Polaris, Iceman, and Banshee. It's important to realize that this is the ramp up to 150. We are getting so close to Uncanny X-Men 150, this landmark number. And whether or not you're somebody who believes that numbers should dictate the reality of the story or not, the industry at this point made it a habit to celebrate every fucking landmark it could. Uncanny made a huge deal of 150, 175, 200, 225, 250, 275, 300, 325, 350. They love these landmark numbers, and believe you me, they love any time a book hits 94, or 193, or 293, because then they're like, it's the 100th anniversary of the giant size X-Men! They really love to push these fake anniversaries and the importance of numbers as dictating the value of a story, which I don't necessarily agree with. Personally, I think it's more important to let the story dictate the story, but with this build toward 150 coming, you can be sure that that is why we saw the return of Cyclops so quickly. Now, Jonah, there's something really interesting about this Return of Cyclops issue. I could have sworn that we just had Cyclops narrate to us the entirety of the X-Men in 138, and I'm also pretty sure we get it the fuck again here? Absolutely. And something that Cyclops remarks is that he's only gone six weeks. When you really think about that amount of time, that's not long. He has been only gone for a month and a half. That's not enough time for there to be room for change with the team dynamic. There's not enough time for things to heal. That's not a lot of time at all. And it's a really weird connotation and dictation that that's the amount of time between Cyclops quitting and Cyclops narrating what's going on in his life right now. It just seems a little too soon to have him narrating again if you're trying to give us a new protagonist. And speaking of new and old protagonists, this issue only really has about three pages of the core X-Men that we're following. And they're three kind of awkward pages, to be honest. Number one, Xavier just says to Warren, hey, write me another check, which is awkward enough in and of itself. Pulls him out of a training mission to be like, write me another check, mind you. Number two, Wolverine and Kurt kind of pick on Kitty, and Kitty's kind of like, meow, sad, sad. And then Kurt's like, Ike, Liebachen, don't be sad I don't know the German word for sad. I know that they call themselves... Oh, wait, I know this. Wait, what does German call itself? Not Alhamburg. What does it call itself again? <laughs> Deutsch? Deutsch, that's it. Deutschland, right? Yeah. So, help me, Jonah. Well, sad in German would be Traug. So Nightcrawler sees that Kitty is real, real trout and wants to be there for her. I imagine Nightcrawler would say, <laughs> Alexa, das ist so Traug. Spiele 99 Luftballons. So what just happened is I had to get up and make sure that our Shayla, that is what we call her when we don't want to activate her, did not hear us. And she kind of did, but then she gave up. She gave us that purple fuck you ring. It is so cute that Nightcrawler attempts to make a relationship with Kitty work here. And it's even cuter that they're both in winter wear. Yes. And I think this is two important distinctions from coming from this scene. One being, as you said, Nightcrawler trying to build this relationship because I don't think the rest of the X-Men understand what it's like to have someone so young and what that development of teasing and what that can actually mean. Because you can take it as an adult, but when you're young, it's going to affect you much more differently. It's going to weigh on you differently. Also, this is probably the first issue where the X-Mansion is destroyed. 
that it's still in the process of being rebuilt and it's just after this happens a lot of the times in the uncanny issues they tend to breeze right past it that it's already fixed magically through the power of money usually warrens but this is probably the first time we've seen the aftermath and what it means to have someone destroy it and how that affects them mentally and i thought that was a pretty interesting small story they were leaning towards i appreciate that because the thing i'm walking away from this issue most aware of is that the three pages of story that belong to the uncanny x team are the pages that matter cyclops's story could be boiled down to four pages ultimately he finds his new love interest slash side character lee forrester his father has been driven to suicide by the evil spirit despair and the macabre man thing comes the giant sized man thing because nobody at marvel understood anything about innuendos in the 70s shows up and is like no no fight despair no no bad and cyclops is like i will help fight despair by being really resilient and immediately finds himself in a relationship with a woman whose father was just driven to suicide by a magical spirit oh I think something I have a problem with this issue is that when Scott is not with Gene and he's quote unquote single, he finds some badass woman who's immediately drawn to him and they all remark the exact same thing. He is so stoic, closed off and sad. I love him. I have to get to know him. What's underneath it? Cyclops is not that interesting. He really is not that appealing besides maybe physically as to why so many women want to throw themselves at him. And I really love that you pointed out that the women that are drawn to Cyclops are really badass. And I think it's a re- I think it's a reality that we face because this was written primarily by men who could see themselves in the Cyclops role. Chris Claremont, of course, being a outwardly straight white male, could envision himself in the role of Cyclops. And it's not a far stretch to think that in that regard, the women created to fill Cyclops's character roster out would be equally as fascinating as the writer could dream up for themselves. It's a weird wish fulfillment that becomes a little too apparent for me, and it almost takes me away from the effectiveness of these women because Lee Forrester, Colleen Wing, both of those women that we've met so far that Scott has been into have been really interesting and I would love to know more about them but this one characteristic of being drawn to Cyclops is such a deterrent for me and can almost take away from these women but they're still as I said they're badass and they're super cool and they're doing these things that not many other comics have women doing. You know what other comic featured things that you didn't see in a lot of other comics? Rom Space Knight. Rom Space Knight is a bit of an unusual story and Rom has kind of a storied history at Marvel. So, Rom Space Knight was a toy created by Parker Brothers and was given a comic book tie-in. This toy was quite an interesting storyline, and it was meant to tie into board games and electronic toys, and it was going to be really interesting. It showed up in Time Magazine, and so Rom goes on to play a weird role at Marvel where... They eventually lose the rights and IDW gets them. So Marvel can't actually use ROM, but all these stories feature ROM. And it is, frankly, it's more ROMs than on an emulator website. So what you're telling me is Marvel tried pushing another product, making them a comic book character, and it didn't work out for them as intended. They tend, from what it seems like, they have a history of not being able to 
give good stories to things that were originally products or intended to be products to be sold. While Marvel will go on to have a number of very famous licenses they carry for a very long time, like Star Wars and G.I. Joe, more often than not, Marvel has some odd misses. One of my favorite Marvel characters comes from a tie-in, X-51. He originates from the 2001 A Space Odyssey comic and would go on to stay at Marvel for many years. So that's interesting. He's now known as Machine Man, Aaron Stack, one of my favorite characters from Warren Ellis' Next Wave. But this story is bizarre. I don't want to talk too much about the plot itself because the plot isn't as important as the themes. The plot sees a dire wraith, a species of aliens from another dimension living on Earth as spies, mating with a human, creating a hybrid. The hybrid is eventually reached out to by the dire wraith council, it awakens his evil dark magic, he's evil, he force ages his mother 50 years, he murders his father, and convinces the X-Men that Rom is there to kill him, an innocent child, not that Rom is there to stop an evil alien. And the second issue is nothing but a big fight sequence. I don't even know what else to say about the plot of this, other than it is some heavy-handed, the story felt very specifically xenophobic. Absolutely, and that was one of the words I was going to use to describe it. The dire wraith in question that creates the hybrid, literally called the hybrid, eventually it's revealed that he's actually a good person. He learned to fall in love. He learned what that emotion meant and what it meant to be a father. He was very excited to live a normal human life because he was basically reformed. And this town that he's in has a history of dire wraiths and they don't like them. And it's this weird almost connotation of someone foreign coming in and having a mixed race baby and that this mixed race baby is going to grow up evil because people from the homeland make him evil and teach him the evil ways it's weird and it's not what i think they intended but it's what it kind of comes off as but a lot of this story i talk about this a lot when someone uses the x-men or a chris claremont character and it's not written by him and he's kind of not really there even though i think he's credited on this for something the x-men aren't written like the x-men and it's really weird and it's not this isn't a good story at all and the only thing you really take out of this at the end is kitty firing a gun it's fascinating because kitty pride manages to save the day and i really really like that the story ends with rom accidentally being trapped in the hell he's been trapping dire wraiths in and we don't get to follow that narrative but I do like seeing Kitty in an active situation where she saves the day. Other than that, there's a lot of really harsh themes in this two-parter, and they don't really fit the X-Men narrative at this time. This story being by Bill Mantlo does actually make a lot of sense, and it does fit his tonality. This is very in line with his later work on Alpha Flight, and outside of a cool opportunity to see the X-Men interact with the rest of the Marvel Universe, I'm going to have to give this one a big thumbs down. This was not my favorite example of Rom, who the Dire Wraiths will play a very cool role later on in the X-Men, for which I am excited. But on the whole, this storyline did not do it for me. Honestly, 144 and the two Rom issues had me off to a pretty bad start for this episode. But that being said, going from three lackluster issues to what I think are three pretty amazing and very different for the X-Men issues from 145 to 147. And while I can praise this story up and down, one thing that sticks out is Kitty Pride's incredibly minor inclusion. And I found a quote on it. Tom DeFalco once asked Dave Cockrum, during the time you were away, had the characters changed much, referring to his brief hiatus during the incredibly successful burn run. 
and Cochran replied, They matured Wolverine into somebody I could actually enjoy working with, and they introduced Kitty Pride. At the time, I'm thinking, this little girl is in the X-Men, boy is that dumb. So she had the flu for the first few issues I did. But then we started using her, I discovered she was actually fun. I'm sometimes stubborn about things, but once you beat it into my head, I can do something with it. I think it's really interesting that Claremont is immediately credited with being understanding of his artist's needs by the next artist. It puts the burn story in question. It really does, especially when we discussed that last Uncanny episode, where it seemed like there were like three different stories floating around of what actually happened. But this is a pretty interesting situation that Chris created that almost discredits what John Byrne was saying. Absolutely. It's also interesting that this arc, which extensively features Doctor Doom, is the first arc without John Byrne, because John Byrne left the X-Men to work on Fantastic Four. So it's very, very interesting that that happened. It's also very interesting that immediately after this arc took place in X-Men, these stories would be kind of pushed out of continuity by John Byrne over on Fantastic Four, citing that Chris Claremont had never gotten approval from the Fantastic Four editorial office to do this story. This story also sees the return of a lot of characters. Not only do we get Havoc, Polaris, Banshee, Amanda Sefton, John and Elaine Gray, Ileana Rasputin, and Stevie Hunter, but they even find room to squeeze in Arcade, Miss Locke, and Doctor Doom, this incredible villain trifecta. Surprisingly, also, if those heroes and good guys and evildoers didn't do it enough for you, this is also the first return of Iceman. We've talked about Iceman here on Access for Podcast over in Champions, but Warren came back way before Iceman did. Iceman's just been living a normal college life as a student. He's just drinking beer in his dorm room trying to type out papers. He's not doing superhero things, which is really weird. It kind of does track with where they send Iceman ultimately, but yeah, considering Beast has shown up a number of times, Warren has officially rejoined the X-Men at this point, Cyclops and Jean had been the narrative focus of the story for so long, that Bobby has managed to stay off of our radar so repeatedly and so extensively is kind of a credit to the fact that Bobby maybe does just want a normal life. It's what sets him apart from the other X-Men. When you think of Beast, you think of somebody who loves adventure, and... It's hard to imagine Warren tamed and with his wings pinned back. But Bobby really does kind of like show up in this story a little begrudgingly. But if I can for one second, I can't stop making fun of how this plan comes together. It's actually a really interesting plan in which it's pitched to recreate the events that brought together the giant size X-Men, call together these mutants from all over the world. And Xavier does so. And afterward, he says, I am tired storm i've been trying to mentally contact scott but i spent myself summoning the others i lack the strength to reach him and i just want to be like dude there is no consistency to your power level absolutely so just a few issues ago he was going head to head with the actual phoenix force itself actually the dark phoenix force but he used up all his powers from people who really aren't that far away you know, I think if he was trying to contact Sunspot, sure, you know, Japan is really far from New York, whichever direction you're going, but everyone else is decently close where I don't understand this. I actually don't understand why he didn't try to contact any of them by phone. Why didn't he try 
the fuck? Hey, Moira. Hey, Moira. Since half of these people live on your island, can you just check with them for me and see if they can come play? Like, what the fucking god? But what's even more interesting about this is that this arc is all about double trouble in a lot of ways. It's two sets of villains. The plot of this issue is so entertaining because it has Miss Locke convincing Storm to get the X-Men to help her break Arcade free from Doom, referencing the awful Marvel 2-in-1 we read where Toad has Murder World in a former Doom castle. Jeez, this is so much stacked on top of itself. It turns out it's actually a trap. Arcade's in on the whole thing. And so it's a good thing there's a backup team of X-Men, but Miss Locke is prepared for the backup team of X-Men. So, okay, it's Miss Locke convinces the X-Men to come save Arcade from Doctor Doom, who's captured because of Toad and a murder world in a Doom castle. And in order to make this happen, Miss Locke has abducted all of the X-Men's friends and family. And when the X-Men get there, it's a trap. Arcade is working with Doctor Doom, and they trap the X-Men, who have brought a secondary team of interim X-Men, who Miss Locke is prepared for. All the while, Storm has been turned into a giant living statue and keeps crackling lightning to break herself free. Let me tell you, this is a lot of shit happening in three issues. <laughs> it really, really is. This is a lot stacked on each other. A complaint I've had about the X-Men is that in a couple of their arcs and issues, it felt like nothing happened. Like there was just, there was a lot going on, but nothing happened. This is a lot going on and stuff is happening for once, but it is such a convoluted plot to get to where they want. And I, they got there. Was it the best road? Was it a little rocky and maybe off the beaten path? Sure. But they eventually got to where they wanted and were able to tell the story they wanted. I agree, and one of the things that really I can't help but see is how much this is clearly Claremont going out of his way to help play into Cockrum's strengths. We see the return of Havoc and Polaris, who were bigger features during the Cockrum era. We see the return of Banshee, who was a bigger feature during the Cockrum era. This is a lot of working with him. And then we get that gorgeous five-page splash sequence with Nightcrawler breaking himself free and being the hero. And Cockrum created Kurt. It's not surprising that Cockrum would want to have Kurt be the one he draws in the big heroic moment. It allows him to put focus on one of his creations. It only makes real sense for Kurt to be the first one to break out and save the day because everyone else in their traps is too noticeable to see if something has gone wrong. Eventually, all the X-Men will break out because they are all smart enough to figure out what to do. But Kurt is the one who is able to always escape a situation as silently as possible, maybe not as pleasant smelling as possible, but... Which actually is something they never really do bring up in terms of combat, but they do bring it up here, which is a interesting small note that I do like. A nice little touch that they haven't touched on before. But a lot of this issue is really interesting because this is such a different issue, and I think it would have turned out differently if Scott was still the leader of the X-Men. I think this issue only works with Storm as the leader. I agree. Storm's leadership is very different. It's unfortunate that Storm has taken off the board so quickly. But Storm is one of my three big takeaways from this arc that I have to point out. Number one, Storm saying that she understands what it's like to grapple with the power of greatness when she breaks herself out of the magic statue that Dr. Doom has trapped her in. She says she can understand what Jean went through, and it harkens back to the beginning of the arc, where she takes a moment and looks at the Jean orb, promising Jean 
that she will save her parents no matter what. This is an important thing to remind us. The X-Men are still reeling from losing Jean. It's why they treat Kitty the way they do. It is why Storm is becoming a more maternal figure. This is all a response to losing Jean. And in this moment, Storm realizes she could become Jean if she wants. It's important to see her turn that down. My other two moments are just kind of beefcake. One of the things that I think is too many comics from this era play into cheesecake a little too much and play up women a little too sexually. And we don't really get enough men played up sexually enough. But here we get two really fun male moments. In the second issue, there is that adorable moment where Havoc's like, surrender or fight Miss Locke, the choice is yours. And he's so kittenish and his ass is up in the air and he's just like, hey girl, it's adorable. And number two, there's this unbelievably hot panel of Colossus underwater that I swear is the basis for John Cassidy's Colossus in his every appearance. And it is just super hot. I don't even know what, maybe it's just like his hair is floating. I don't know, but it's super hot. Those are my big takeaways. Like most arcade murder world stories, it just sort of comes to an end when arcade is defeated. There isn't much more to it. And as always, people are a little too, okay, Dr. Doom, go your way, we'll go ours at the end. Why don't people just go, oh, dude's a terrorist? That's something interesting that I've noticed too, but I'm not as familiar with Dr. Doom as you are, Nico. But from a little bit of the research I've done extensively outside of just this comic run, I know that Dr. Doom is probably Marvel's most or not one of the most popular villains that they have. And he's also one of the most well-written and defined villains where he's consistently making like the top five or the number one spot on a lot of lists I read of best comic book villains. So it's really interesting to see his dynamic interact with this new leadership of X-Men. And Doctor Doom right now in this issue, from what I'm getting from the plot, isn't really planning to do evil. He's just trying to get back his country. He was usurped from power, and that's all he really wants right now at this point, from what he's making it seem like. Dr. Doom is always considered the noble one, and I don't know why. I mean, I think he's a psychotic terrorist, but I mean, he's noble-ish, and that is always going to be John Byrne's big argument. Magneto is a psychotic murderer, and Dr. Doom is a guy with nuance, and I just think, I don't know, I just think kill one child, you kill them all, you know what I mean? And we haven't seen really any, many child's deaths yet, but I'm pretty sure we'll get to it eventually. Hey, we're getting incredibly close to Uncanny X-Men 150. There's still time. Hello, listeners. I promise one day I will come up with a clever and unique opening, but today is not that day. I'm Matthew, and this time around, I'm bringing you the tragic fall of a founding X-Man. Rick Remender's Uncanny X-Force numbers 10 through 18, The Dark Angel Saga. Technically, number 10 isn't included under the Dark Angel Saga banner, but I highly recommend it for context. Despite taking place in the middle of Remender's run, the story stands on its own relatively well. Some background of note for those who may or may not be previously familiar, X-Force is essentially the X-Men's clandestine Black Ops team. This particular incarnation, composed of Wolverine, Archangel, Psylocke, Phantom X, Deadpool, and later Deathlock, came together after Scott Summers disbanded the previous team and said X-Force was no more. Clearly, Wolverine and his cohorts disagreed and continued to operate outside Sykes' awareness. Angel, Warren Worthington III, had been turned into the Horseman of Death by Apocalypse way back in the original run of X-Factor, and given metal wings with a certain degree of bloodthirsty sentience, otherwise known as his Archangel persona. With the help of Psylocke, he had been working to keep the Archangel persona in check and use it to his advantage. 
Oh, and Phantom X killed a child version of Apocalypse back in the first arc of this uncanny run. And then, everything went horribly, horribly wrong. The Dark Angel saga pays off a plot thread planted back in X-Factor Volume 1. While the rest of the team is away trying to find a cure, Archangel takes over as the dominant personality and begins to ascend as the heir of Apocalypse. Cue shenanigans. In addition to the previously mentioned X-Force team, we also see the return of Dark Beast, Hank McCoy from the Age of Apocalypse timeline, who is a treat. I mean, he's wholesale evil, but he's super entertaining. We also get to see a whole bunch of the AOA X-Men teaming up with X-Force, meaning alternate reality versions of Dead Friends and Lovers, or The Children You Never Got to Have, always a recipe for a fun and painful story. Not to mention the ever-present homoeroticism between Wolverine and Nightcrawler. No, really. Logan speaks about Curtin as an old lover. On a shallow note, Age of Apocalypse Dean's pixie cut is adorable, and seeing Charles Xavier reduced to a MODOK body brings me a certain level of joy. Part 1 of the story takes place primarily in the AOA universe, with Part 2 kicking off when the team gets home to find an overly cordial Archangel. Seriously, as literal apocalyptic villains go, he's pretty damn nice and civil when unprovoked. It makes him that much more interesting to watch. Evil Angel is also responsible for introducing the Tabula Rasa location to the 616 map. Basically, think of the Savage Land, but more alien, evolved millennia in a day, time bubble type weirdness. Of course he does that by atomizing a town, so... Look, I never said he was nice, okay? But you can't deny it was cool. It also gives us a pair of weird alien Xavier and Magneto XBs, who the Uncanny team encounter later in their own title. Now there's some quality homoeroticism. As always, I do my best to avoid spoiling the major plot threads, but I don't think it's a surprise to say that the heroes win. The journey there is painful and intense in more ways than one, though. I will say that while this story on its own is wonderful, and the ending is beautifully poetic, it does set the stage for Angel's characterization to be an absolute disaster for the rest of eternity. I get it, most characters go through some degree of development reset every few years. That's just an unfortunate effect of comics. Angel, however, seems to reset every four issues or so anymore, which is a bit of a shame, and this is where it starts. All in all, this is a beautiful and tragic story. The artwork is fittingly dark and gritty, the characters are fleshed out well, and the villain has a compelling tie to the heroes. Plus, there's a pretty great Deadpool pun near the end. It's definitely worth your time, even if you aren't a fan of Angel himself. God knows I wasn't before reading this. Before I say goodbye for today, I want to call attention to Marvel Unlimited's Smart Panel View mode. Every panel in a comic is its own piece of art, and the smart view transitions panel to panel rather than page to page. The Dark Angel Saga has some truly breathtaking panels, and reading it through this mode gives the reader space to really appreciate each one without being drawn to the rest of the page. And dear sweet merciful gods, I let this be the closest I ever get to product placement. Anywho, that's all for now. Come back next time and I'll dazzle you with some magic. Until then, you can find me on Instagram at uppityLittleHomo, where I'll either be posting cute pictures or bitching about Kingdom Hearts 3. TTFN and happy reading! Hello, I'm Gay Geek Psychiatrist Dr. Matt Connor, and welcome back to Mary Mutant Mental Health, a segment where we talk a little bit about the mental health issues inspired by some of the X-Men comics Nico and the team are reading on X's for Podcast. Now, I've read pretty much every X book since Claremont started, and I could not for the life of me remember this Space Knight story. And Nico had to explain to me that it's about this kid who finds out he's secretly dual species and he tortures his parents. Nico, this is the episode you want to drop halfway between Mother's Day and Father's Day?
Fine. Okay, let's talk a little bit about what our parents mean to us. In most branches of the medical field, it's important to know your family history. For instance, my primary care doctor wants to know how many of my relatives died of heart disease so he can help manage my specific risk. A lot of cancers or kidney diseases or autoimmune conditions have very clear genetic links. But mental health is a little bit different. I know, I know. Tell me about your mother. But here's the deal. We inherit DNA from our biological parents. That code tells our brain which protein varieties we're going to make and how. And so I do want to know, as a psychiatrist, if either of your biological parents had been treated for a mental condition when we have our first appointment. It helps me know what I should be asking more about to sort out what's got you down. And some diseases are highly heritable. Schizophrenia, bipolar type 1, for example. These are really, really likely if someone has a parent who had that condition. And knowing that helps me talk to you about what to look for in an early presentation of it if you haven't developed it. It gives us a chance to talk about how early we should look at medication as a part of your treatment, and also how to attend to things like diet, exercise, sleep, and a solid social network, all of which can minimize the impact of disease. But most of what I see when I'm working with people is a combination of the vulnerability that you inherited in the protein structures from your parents and the impact of just living your life. What you got in your brain from your dad, whether he be an alcoholic or a space alien or resilient as hell, that affects how you respond to stressors like trauma or a drink. So it does matter if you know who that person is who is your biological dad and what his brain is like. But the bigger part of your mental health comes from the modeling and caretaking, what your developmental environment was like, what we call attachment. So when I'm asking about family history, it's more important for me to understand, was mom healthy? Did she show you how to take good care of yourself when you were sad? Did she let you know it was okay to be scared? Did she help you figure out what kind of questions to ask yourself when deciding what kind of person you want to be? Or was she in bed a lot of the time because she was too overwhelmed? Did the family tell stories about crazy Aunt Sarah and laugh at her? So does that make coming to see me something that's really embarrassing or scary? Did you have an awesome older sibling who filled in some of the gaps, or a teacher or a coach who thought you were special? Or did you have a moment with that one scene in Uncanny X-Men 304 when Jean Grey hugged Jubilee and told her that she was important and that it's okay to grieve? Just me? Just me. Anyway, this information applies whether you were adopted, or if this is a step family, or if this is a boarding school. That's right. If you can't have homemade, store-bought is fine in this place. Whatever your brain proteins, you have to deal with the lessons that you're taught in the place where you grew up. And that's what makes you the person you are, not genetic destiny. Parents matter. They absolutely do. But the DNA of it is so much less than we want to say that it is. So yes, your parents may not be telling you the truth about your species. But if they do their best, if they raise you the best they can, they are giving you tools that you can use. And maybe as we think about our parents this month and last month, and after reading this weird, weird story that Nico is making us read, maybe we can take some time to thank the people in our lives who have taught us. Maybe that's our biological parents. Maybe that's our grandparents, our neighbors, our cousins, our coaches, our pastors. The point is, we come from somewhere. And understanding where can do a lot for the way that we treat ourselves today. Let's stop there. We'll pick it up again next time. In the meantime, you can follow me on Instagram at Matthew James Connor, M-A-T-T-H-E-W-J-A-M-E-S-C-O-N-N-E-R. But there's not a whole lot there except for like some cosplay and cute pictures of my dog because I don't love social media. All right. See you next time.
So we had X-Rise with Matthew and Mutant Mental Health with Dr. Matt. And we've covered a lot of different interesting topics and themes that these issues covered in this episode. Some of those being isolation, depression, fear, obligation, different things that we as normal readers can relate to these characters and see ourselves in for better or for worse. And I think that's part of why we love Marvel so much and what made Marvel stand out compared to its competitors. I would agree, particularly with the X-Men. Raman's an example of a book that has some fun characters, but man, those two issues did not land right for us. And we did also find 144 a little heavy-handed, although that did lead us to some interesting stuff with Scott and Lee Forrester washing up on a beach and Scott needing to keep himself blindfolded. God, that guy's into some kinky stuff. But until we're back to talk about more of Scott's kinks, Jonah, where can everybody find you on the web? Not in Scott's imaginary dungeon. You can find me online at... (laughs) You can find me online on Twitter and Instagram at Jonah Rubino and at Jonah.Rubino. Nico, where can all your fans find you? You can find me in my black bug room making diverse, inclusive comics at KidRiotComics.com. You can find me on amazing other shows here like Phoenix.HTML and MCU.HTML with my incredible husband, Jonah's boyfriend, Kevo. You can also check me out on Now and Again a show where I talk about pop music with my childhood best friend, Chris. We'll be expanding to include Thor into our comic book repertoire in the very near future, so keep an eye out for me and Kyle of Champions fame to keep talking about comics, including the Asgardians. As always, you can check me out on Instagram at NicoAction, that's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And until we return to Gray Malkin Lane, everybody have a great day. See you, everyone.